I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Our focus for today is uh, answering, in this passage, answering the question, how do we take commands of Jesus to the twelve and apply it into our lives? And I think this can be a little tricky, because sometimes he says stuff to the twelve disciples, and you're like, but is that for me? Or is that for them? Or in what way does it apply to me? And so I'm going to take kind of like a case in point. This passage gives us like a, a, a great spot to analyze that and answer that question a bit. Jesus here, he sends out the 12 two by two. And I want to know when he sends them out saying and giving instructions to them, how do I apply it to myself? What kind of qualifications do I have to understand it, to apply it well, but not to abuse it, abuse the scripture here or misunderstand it? Um, their calling after all is in some ways different than the generic calling of all believers. And so we'll talk about a little bit of that. Um, we're also going to get into some apologetic stuff and all that. Why? Because this is the Mark series part 19 now. I believe we're in 19. And what we do is we do verse by verse teaching through the gospel of Mark, just doing like an actual Bible study. We're studying the text of scripture to draw from it the truths that God has placed there for us. We're not trying, I'm not trying, it's not like I come with, here's my agenda. Let me find a passage that will help me get that across, uh, but rather Let's look at the passage and see what we can learn from it. That's the different angle we're taking. And if, if you're watching online, you can get the link to the whole series in the video description for the entire Mark playlist. It's all free or on the Bible Thinker app or on the podcast or at a Walmart near you. It's not at Walmart. Um, okay, so Mark chapter 6. Let's dig in here. And we're going to read verses 7 through 13 to just load the scripture into our minds, kind of get an overview of the section we're in today. It says... Um, here in Mark 6, 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over un the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, Shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And I'll quickly mention the idea of them anointing with oil and healing. We're going to talk a little bit about anointing with oil and healing and how what we learned in scripture from this. Um, but some questions I'll start with are this, like, should I, based on the idea that the disciples went without, they were sent out two by two with no extra supplies, am I supposed to do that? Is that like how I should be conducting ministry? Is, is this like the rule for missions in general? Um, should everybody do this? Or should perhaps just missionaries are supposed to do this? Or just pastors? Are they supposed to do this kind of thing? Um, well, let's answer these questions as we go through verse by verse. Verse 7 says this, to bring it to our mind again. And he summoned the twelve. And began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So the 12 here is a specific group of guys. It's a consistent group of guys. The 12, the 12 disciples, you guys are already familiar with them, right? But the one guy I want you to remember this includes is Judas. Judas is in this group. He's going out with a partner, whoever his partner happens to be. He's going out with a partner and he's preaching. And it sounds like he's casting out demons and healing now, I often think of Judas, and when I think about the activities he did before he betrayed Christ, I imagine him, you know, hoarding the money bag and stealing from it. And you know what I mean? You imagine him just doing, like, 
Like you're thinking, if I was a fly on the wall, I would have been like, Judas, I can totally tell you're a bad guy the whole way. But it seems like that probably wasn't the case. They found out later he was stealing from the money. They did find this out later. But here he is, and he's preaching, and this this happens. Jesus picks this guy, and he's, he's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he ends up betraying Christ. This happens, and I, I actually think we can get some encouragement out of this. Because we look around our lives, and if you live long enough, you will see people who seem to be legit ministers. Legit, like, loving the Lord, seem to, seem to be loving the Lord, seem to be serving God, seem to be doing wonderful things in the name of Christ, like Judas seemed to be. In fact, he was preaching, and he seems he was healing and casting out demons. I never see an exception, you know, except Judas. He, it didn't work when he did it. You know, I don't hear that. What I learned from this is that God uses all things. In God's sovereignty, in God's ultimate plan and purposes. He's using all things, including people who will be later found out to be either false converts or they fall away or whatever your theology is on that. The point is, God is still in control of those things. And if Judas sits here right at the center of the gospel traveling through, and then we find out he later betrays Christ, but we see how God uses that for his glory, then we cannot lose heart when we see somebody who gets a lot of press because they fell away or walked away from Christ betrayed the name of Christ, and even are now traveling around blaspheming Christ. I can see this, and I can say, hey, this is just kind of like Judas. The good news is, most of these guys don't kill themselves right afterwards, and we can still hope and pray for their return, that they would come home to the truth of Jesus Christ, and that they would have a new testimony, hopefully, instead of ending like Judas did. Um, so they go out in pairs, they go out in pairs, and that's something good to know, um, to note. It's in pairs, two by two. They didn't go out alone. They went out with somebody. And this was a practice that continued in the church. It continued regularly. For one, uh, Jesus, when he sends out in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, we, re- we hear about it. He sends out the 70. He sends out the 12. Then he sends out later the 70, 70 disciples. And he sends them out two by two. So this two by two thing was like a normal thing. In Acts 8.14, we read this. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Peter and John. I wonder if Peter and John were paired together when Jesus sent them out two by two. And that's why they're also paired together in the book of Acts when they go out. In Acts 13, 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas and Saul, they, and then they got sent out as a, as a pair, as two ministry partners to go and do things together. Doesn't mean nobody else helped them or assisted them, but they had like this core two people together. Later on, when Barnabas and Saul split, they didn't just split. They split and they each grabbed one other person so they would still have two. So let me read to that verse to you. In Acts 15, 39 and 40, it says, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So they each pick a replacement because this like two by two thing was kind of like a regular practice of the church. Why is that? Why, why is that? Jesus sends them out two by two. The 70 are out two by two. They tend to go out in pairs, tends to. I'm not saying it was a definitive rule. It always had to happen, but it seemed like it happened a lot. There's a few reasons I can give. Um, one is there's a biblical standard that let every matter, matter be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so having a second person with you adds credibility to the things you're saying. And having two people that Jesus sends out, two individuals, it, and then they say, Jesus says this, and the other one goes, yep, he sure does. And you know, they're both followers of Christ, personally sent by him, then it gives credibility to what they're saying. That's the idea. 
uh, mouth, mouth of two or three witnesses adds credibility. Also, there's help when you have more than one person. I mean, this is kind of obvious, right? There's help when you have more than one person, but it's a biblical principle in Ecclesiastes we read in Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. So it gives one reason right there. They have a good return for their labor when two people can get more done than one person over here and one person over there. All right, two people is more than twice the work that's done. In fact, there are certain jobs that you can't do without a second person. It's a one, one person alone, you're like, oh, well, I can't do it. But if you have two, you can do so much more. So it goes on and says, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. And so we have just the human weakness factor. Someone's down, someone's having a hard time, someone is injured or whatever. A second person with them can help them out. And so they have this going on. Verse 11 says, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And that may not seem like that big of a deal, except that if you're traveling in the cold and the dark and you get hypothermia and die, you're really wishing you had a cuddle buddy. In, an, in a pure, Our culture is so perverted, we immediately go to the perverted place with that. That's obviously not where the scripture is going here, but it's about the idea that you would just be warm and not die. So two is better than one because it could literally save your life. And then verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 4 says, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So um, this is not, I don't think, the point, the main point in this passage that we're in, in this two by two, the disciples go out, but I just want to mention it because it's here, is that um, doing ministry all alone is rough stuff. And you can be serving in a church, but you're doing ministry alone because you're not connected with anybody who you could just sort of confide in you know, pray with, who you could be like, hey, here's, here's what I'm struggling with. And, and they can encourage you or you can encourage them. And so my encouragement is don't be alone as you serve the Lord. Um, you're going to have challenges. You're going to have stresses. You're going to have all sorts of weights and pressures and all that to get you to be like, I'm going to quit. In fact, I know people who serve for years and they've got one foot out the door the whole time. And that, you know, affects their, because they're just feeling that stress and that difficulty, but they really want to serve God. But it's not that easy all the time, you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I would say just don't be alone. It's just, it's just not wise to be alone. It's uh, also interesting that mission organizations, many of them will not send out a single missionary by themselves. They'll only send them out in groups or at least two because of these same principles. They just realize it pragmatically. It doesn't work well. So Jesus sends them out two by two. And I imagine it would have been a different experience if they had gone out one by one. Because we need, we, need, we need help. We need to partner with one another. Uh, which, of course, requires us to get along. Which is what, I mean, it's a pain. I know. But we're called to it in, as, as Christians. Um, so the third reason why maybe the two-by-two two went out was the benefit of practicing the memorization and recall of Jesus' words. And this is something we don't think about, but it actually seems really important to me. You see, they'd heard Jesus teaching probably the same messages in all these different towns. He preaches the gospel town after town after town after town. They're hearing probably the same parables over and over and over again. They're hearing Jesus deliver the same messages. Oh, some people say, is it the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain? And it's like, well, he probably delivered the same sermons in multiple locations all over the place because it was different crowds. And this is what you do. Traveling preachers just repeat the same content over and over again. Sometimes too much, actually. Um, but Jesus would have repeated a lot of the same stuff. So they would have heard it a lot. Well, now they're really being tested because now they have to go out into other towns and they have to repeat what Jesus says to other people, and Jesus isn't there. But they got this other guy. He's heard Jesus just as much as them. 
So then when you say, well, Jesus, Jesus is taught, he taught this, he said this, he said that, you got your other buddy there, he's like, oh, no, 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 Peter, you got that wrong. Or no, John, actually, here's how it was. And so you have like this sort of accountability in perfecting their understanding and communication of the words of Jesus Christ. That might be one of the benefits of this. Because from the very beginning, it was really important in the church that Jesus was establishing that the disciples would accurately report what Jesus did. Accuracy was really important to them. And there are some modern scholars or even older scholars who will say that it just doesn't, that it's like they didn't care about the accuracy of it. That, you know, the traditions developed over time and they changed radically. And it seems like the evidence piles up and says that's not the case. That's not the case. Um, but rather that there was this sort of fidelity to what Jesus said. They kept it, they kept it pure. They kept it pure. Probably the worst example of this is when, and some guys that should know better, they compare the way that we got our gospels to the telephone game. I don't know if you guys ever played the telephone game. This is what happens in college campuses all over the place. They walk into the college campus and go, well, you know how you got your bubble, right? It was the telephone, like the telephone game. I don't think there's any book probably in existence that we've gotten like the telephone game. But the illustration really drives it into you. And may I just say, the telephone game, as many times as I've played it, without, almost without exception, the goal of the telephone game is to mess up the original message in fun ways. This is the agenda. You, tell, you whisper it to them once, they only get to hear it once. Sometimes you whisper it even quieter than you should because you just want to let it get messed up and see what happens. Sometimes people change it because they just feel like it. To compare how we got the words of Jesus to the telephone game is just deceptively wrong. Deceptively wrong. Um, and it's just not, not even remotely true. No, they seem to care about the accuracy of these things. I'll mention the one exception. We were at camp and I, told, I had told the kids a story about when I was in elementary school and I, I peed my pants. Just a true story. Um, <laughs> You know it's true, because why would I tell you that story if it wasn't true? Um, and um, and uh, by the way, it was because my teacher wouldn't let me get up to go to the bathroom, by the way. She said, stay in your seat, and I obeyed, and then I ended up. But I had a, I'll, I'll just tell you, I had a plan. And the plan was that if I ran as fast as I could from place to place during recess, nobody would see that my pants were all wet, because I would just be blurry. <laughs> I was, I, it was, this was like second grade, I think, so... So yeah, that was my agenda. I ran from place to place, and I'd be like, I'd like look around. I remember looking around. I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna run to the to the to the uh, handball court. Nobody's over there, you know. And I fast as I could, and then uh, it didn't work. Um, so yeah, I got I got caught, and my granny came and brought me new pants. So everything was okay. So anyhow, I told him this, and we played the telephone game. And the, one of the kids starts the telephone game with the phrase, "Pastor Mike peed his pants." Wouldn't you know it? We went around like 30 kids in the circle. And they went all the way through the circle, and they got it word for word right. <laughs> for the only time I've ever seen in a telephone game, they got it word for word right. At the end, they're like, Pastor Mike paid his parents. And everybody starts cracking up. And I thought, you know what's funny? Is even the telephone game works when people care about the message. <laughs> Yet scripture is not like the telephone game. Because they go out and they're repeating the words of Jesus that he's taught many times over. And later they're going to be back with Jesus to confirm with him and then listen fresh again. Now as teachers, not just listeners, to hear him again and learn it even better. So that, that's what we see happening here. That may be another reason why they went out two by two. Um, is this a rule? Should we always go out two by two? No, uh, I don't think we always have to be two by two in every scenario. But it, it, it seems like wisdom though. That's what it seems like an example of wisdom that we can follow. That we want to be partners in ministry when we, when we possibly can. Partner in some way so you're not alone. It's not healthy. 
Okay, there's some subtle but profound implications of uh, who Jesus is in this passage as well. I don't know if you noticed it. Let me read to you a few words from the passage. That Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. He gave them authority. Think about that. When Jesus cast out demons, he did so as one with incredible authority. We've, we've learned this. when he ca- The demoniac is like the ultimate example, right? Thousands of demons, and he's just with a word. But here, it's even a step further. Jesus, he's like, not only am I telling you to go cast out demons, I am the one who's giving you the authority to do it. What kind of authority does he have when he can just give someone else the authority to cast out demons? This is a subtle implication about the identity of Christ. And let me, let me drive this home even more because there are um, a different types of angels in the scripture, but one of them, the high, high kind of angel is an archangel, right? Archangels are way up there. So, I, mean, I don't know the hierarchy. I don't understand all about angels or something and neither do you, but, but they're way up there. Archangels are way up there. And we read about Michael the archangel in Jude verse 9. And it says this, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael didn't feel he had the authority to rebuke Satan. So he said, the Lord rebuke you. He appeals to God. He wants, God, will you rebuke him? I don't have that place, but you do, God. Jesus not only goes around rebuking and casting out Satan. Those are the words Jesus uses. He says, if I cast out Satan... Then it, is, then it is the kingdom of God has come upon you. So those are his words. And he, so not only does he cast out Satan, does he tell Satan, get behind me? He can rebuke him verbally, but he can go a step further and he can be like, hey, uh, Dylan, you now have authority to do it too because he has that much clout or authority in the universe. Why? Because he's the creator of it because the identity of Christ is, is that big of a deal. What's interesting is that after the temptation, In the temptation, we see Jesus being uh, directly attacked by Satan. He doesn't feel like he can just overpower him, but he tries to tempt him, right? After that, it says he left for an opportune time. But he never goes and confronts Jesus. Even when Jesus encounters demons, they're not like attacking him. They run and bow before him and are like, oh, please don't, you know, cast us out before the time. Then when, so, so Satan's not directly confronting Jesus. And when he finally does attack Jesus, he does it through human agency. He doesn't do it in any direct fashion. He does it through Judas, right? Satan entered Judas. What we're learning from there is that Satan is outmatched by Jesus Christ, as opposed to, say, Michael the archangel. I will add here that Jesus is not Michael the archangel, just based upon this line of reasoning. This is, this is why Jesus can actually give someone else authority to cast out demons. And again, we have in Mark the identity of Christ being, being given to us. This who is Jesus question is being pushed. <clears throat> And I'll add, anecdotally, um, in my own life, as well as many stories I've heard of people who've encountered demonic forces, like in real life, where you experience something and you go, no, that was, I have no explanation except that that was truly demonic. They always talk about the power of the name of Jesus. Over and over again, it was the name of Jesus. It was the name of Christ that gave me power in that situation. And so it's by his authority that we, that we appeal to, to, have, uh, to overcome the enemy. All right, verse 8, we read on. Verse 8 says, And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And the question I want to say is, 
Does this mean I should go without too? Because as I used to read the Bible when I was younger and I would have opened it up and just plopped it open to this passage in the middle of the gospel of Mark and I would have been like, go out and don't bring anything with me. And then I would have been like, wait, do I, do I go right now? Is that what I do? And I think the first question we should ask before we apply it to ourselves, we should ask, what did it mean then? This is a good rule of thumb, which most of you guys get, right? First interpret, then apply. Don't just grab the scripture and apply it. Um, or else someone says they, they opened the Bible and they found a place that says Judas hanged himself. And they thought, oh, I don't like that. I want a verse I can apply. And then they flipped around more and it says, go and do likewise. No, no, <laughs> this is not good. And that's exactly how you don't study the Bible. So um, how did this apply to the disciples, though? How did it apply to them? Well, it was temporary. That's the first thing we learned. In Luke 22, verses 35 through 36, Jesus is recapping. He's discussing this experience of going out two by two. And he says, in Luke twenty two thirty five, and he said to them, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. So this was a, this was a training thing. This is why they were to go out temporarily with nothing. And the next time they, Jesus is about to be crucified and he goes, make sure you have all your supplies. You're going to need them this time. So it was temporary. It means it was a season. So it applied, how did it apply to the disciples? There was a season where they went with nothing, no supplies. And there was another season where they were supposed to take all their supplies with them. Why? I think the, the answer is they were being trained. That's what it seems like to me. It seems like this is all training. This is part of their discipleship. They're being educated and brought into the knowledge of how to follow Jesus. Um, I don't think it's a command for all of us, and I don't want to skip context, and I know that it can be annoying that you can't just open the Bible, read a random verse, and apply it however you feel. Um, and I know that can be annoying, because then you have to actually study the text, or like read it carefully and understand it in context and all that. And all I want to say is, I've just saved your life <laughs> by, by keeping you from basically reading whatever you want into the scriptures. It's like, we, we got to take it for what it actually says. So what are they learning then? What's the lesson? I mean, my, my application is not going to be to do exactly what the disciples did. Even for them, it was only a temporary season. What were they learning? And here's, here's the gold of this. Here's the application for me. They took no bread, which means they had no food. They took no bag, which means they had no, no nothing. They didn't have any supplies of any kind with them. One commentary said this bag would be used to beg for money. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see any evidence of that. Uh, sometimes those are things I read, and I, I get the feeling like, where did this come from? Um, yeah, more likely I'm, I'm thinking the bag was just to carry supplies. He's like, just don't carry any supplies. Don't bring any backup stuff. Um, they, they weren't to take any money at all. When, now money's the universal, it's okay that I forgot that because I have money thing, right? This is, when you go traveling, you're like, well, we might have forgot something, but we got money. They have no money. So there's no way to get backup supplies. This is going to put them, bottom line, in immediate need. Immediate need for food, shelter, provisions, and they've got no way to provide for it. No way of meeting those needs, except for through the people they're ministering to, just being nice. The hospitality of the people they're ministering to, that's what they're depending on. So does this mean that the disciples, or that we today should practice suffering lack? Like I think of these middle-aged pillar saints. The pillar saints? Have you heard of these guys? Put themselves up on a pillar... And they have no food, they don't have any extra clothes or anything, and they, just, and they just sit there and suffer, exposed to the elements. And people come along with food on sticks, and they feed these pillar saints. 
And I'm just like, this is a really weird, not Christian practice. But they could draw it from a text like this, right? Go out with nothing, go out with nothing, but that's not the application. In fact, they weren't even necessarily to practice suffering. The idea wasn't, I want you to suffer. The idea was, I want you to have nothing and see God provide. That was the plan here. The plan was go with nothing and God will provide. Because Jesus later says, when you went out with nothing, did you lack? And they said, no, we didn't lack anything. See, they didn't actually go starving. They didn't go without shelter. They were taken care of. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. They were taken care of. Verse 10 says it. Whenever you enter a town, stay there until you leave town. A house, excuse me. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. <clears throat> so they were taken care of by hospitality, the kindness of those they ministered to. Now, this is actually a lot more common. You know, right now in the, in the U.S., you know, you meet a stranger. You don't invite them over to your house. Right? Well, they lived in a, in a different culture, a better culture in many ways than the one we're currently living in. Um, yeah, where nowadays it's like you don't even want people to know where you live. <laughs> so that's unfortunate. Uh, so it's not a uni- universal command, but this does seem like it's an example for future ministry. And that is that those who do, this, do the service of the ministry, that their needs are taken care of by God. And let me read a few scriptures that talk about this. Because this is the kind of thing I would never have come up with on my own, but scripture does teach it pretty clearly. So I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Galatians 6.6, 6, it says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So like if you're being blessed by, by teachers, then you share with them. Now I think this gets complicated nowadays, especially with like online ministries. I don't think you're obligated to, to bless and take care of online ministries in the same sense as you are with local ministries. For, for one, I'll give you one example. Let's say that you have a church of people and they're not helping take care of their leadership. The people who need to spend, they, they, they don't get to do full-time work or hopefully they don't have to be doing that so they can spend time in the word and teach well and stuff like that. And then the, the church doesn't do anything to help those people out, those leaders out. Well, this could actually have real serious negative consequences. But with online ministries, it's, you're, you, you need a lot less people to help because so many more people are being reached. So the, the ratio of how many people are needed to give to support a ministry when it has an online reach is a lot lower than the ratio of people that need to help and support local ministries that have a smaller reach. So ironically, the ministries with the biggest reach kind of need the least support. And the ones with the smaller local reaches need, the, need more support. That's like, Pragmatically, this is how it seems to me. Just my opinion, though. But the idea of supporting those who minister to you is biblical. Um, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18 talks about this as well. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And he's talking about uh, financially taking care of them. Um, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Meaning that not all the elders worked hard at preaching and teaching. Maybe they had other type of tasks, other type of ministry focuses. But those who are focused on preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while, it's, while, it is, uh, while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. This is like totally lost on our Western audience, right? <laughs> Don't muzzle the ox. Well, the ox is threshing or helping with the farming, right? And you put a muzzle on it so that it won't eat the, the wheat while it's threshing. And there's a rule in the Old Testament, it's against a kind of animal cruelty, and says, you can't do that, right? Like, let the ox eat while it's threshing. And if you, if you can't do that to an animal, don't do it to a person. That's the idea. Don't do it to a person. And some people think it's like pious to make sure that their leaders are in poverty. 
and I will say, you're a pillar saint. Like that's like you're you're right in that category of of like suffering for the sake of suffering without any. It's weird. So the next part of what he says in First Timothy five eighteen, the labor is worthy of his wages. Well, notice he introduced it as Scripture says. And he quotes, the labor is worthy of his wages. The only place in scripture that says that that we're aware of is Luke 10, 7. And it's Jesus who says it. Paul seems to be aware of Luke as scripture, as being written down and as being in the category of scripture. Which is a cool thing in the, when we build our case for the canonicity of the uh, New Testament. Luke 10, 7 says, um, oh sorry, it wasn't Luke 10, 7. That was the wrong reference. But it, it's in the words, it's the words of Jesus somewhere in Luke. I forget where. You could look it up. There's your homework. Go find out what I didn't write down. Luke 10, 7. Jesus says this to the 72 when he sends them out two by two. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you for the labor. Oh, this is it. The labor is worthy of his wages. I stand corrected by, I was, I was right and then I was wrong and then I was right. Never should have doubted myself. I'll never think I'm wrong again. <laughs> That's not true. Um, it'll probably be about five minutes. So Luke 10, 7. Yeah. That's where Jesus says it. The labor is worthy of his wages. <clears throat> so that's the idea. Um, now, what's interesting, though, is this is not like some rule that's meant to burden the people of God. It's meant to liberate the servants of God. That's the idea. That the purpose here is not to burden people with the idea of giving, requiring certain percentages of income. I don't think that's a biblical thing at all. Not for New Testament believers. I don't think percentages of income is in the scripture for us. And I, I'm really opposed to the idea of people teaching that. I think that they need to go back to the text of scripture and examine it more carefully. And to notice this, that Paul, while he could have demanded this as a right thing, he often didn't and even wouldn't allow it. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul writes, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul was working when he was there visiting them. He was laboring really hard so he could earn his own wages so that he wouldn't take anything from them. It seems that especially when it's outreach-oriented, they tend to be like, I don't want this money thing entering into it. I don't want this obstacle of people thinking that we're doing this for money. So both of these ideas are brought together in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, and 15. It says this, the ideas of um, it's right to pay or you know support financially, materially, spiritual leaders, especially those who are laboring in word and doctrine, but also... It's entirely appropriate for them to forego that for the sake of ministry because it can open doors. So 1 Corinthians 9, 14 and 15, it says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, which is really what the verses we quoted already from Jesus, right? But, Paul says, but I have used none of these things and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. Paul said, yeah, it's appropriate, it's right, but I don't want it. I don't want it. And so strategically, I think those who are serving a ministry need to ask themselves before they even receive donations or something is, what kind of impact will this have on my ministry? You know, is it, it, maybe it's worth it for me to just be working full time and doing this as much as I can on the side. Maybe that's worth it in order to keep the purity of this ministry because I don't want them thinking I'm trying to take advantage of them. So it's like an, it can be an appropriate thing that you hold off on just for that purpose. And so may God give us wisdom in making those decisions. But the bottom line is <clears throat> that we can trust in God's provision as we do ministry. And that's the lesson for the 12. As they go out two by two with no preparations, no, no provisions, God takes care of them as they do his ministry. 
And so Jesus, he really brings us home, Matthew 6, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this formula is twisted by some. Seek first, like, you make your life all about serving God, both in personal righteousness, living for Christ, and in doing things for his kingdom externally. So my personal character in Christ and then my service to Christ. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. The provision of what, you'll, what you need to eat, wear, clothing, housing, all that stuff. God will take care of you. Here's how people twist it. If you tithe, God will pay your bills. That is not what it says. Right? It says, no, 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 no. It doesn't say if you tithe, God will pay your bills. It's seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is a very different concept. Tithing doesn't enter the picture, except as some really tertiary consideration of, Lord, am I honoring you with the, with the money I have? That's the question. Am I honoring you with this wealth that you've given me, whatever it is? Um, but I don't think the 10% rule is biblical. One day I'll, I'll do a teaching on that to make that more clear. I realize for some people you're like, what are you talking about, Mike? One day we'll do that. Sometime 2024. It's on my list. Um... Yeah, so they're to trust in God as they do ministry. That's the idea. That's a principle that you, can, you and I can apply. I'm not going to go out with nothing right now, like I just received that command from Jesus, but I am going to learn the principle, wherever I go, serving the Lord with all I've got, trusting him to take care of me. This doesn't mean, I know, I, now I knew guys who literally quit jobs because they were just irritated, personally irritated with work. And they quit their jobs, and then they said, I think God wanted me to quit. And some people, they make decisions, and in, in, in retrospect, they always think it was God. And those who know them well sometimes tell them, like, hey, I think maybe you made a bad choice, you know? And so I don't know how to fix that. But if, if, if someone's not capable of evaluating themselves and asking, Lord, was that me or you? If they're not able to do that, I don't know how to do that from a pulpit for somebody. But I'll say a principle for us as Christians is, yes, if the Lord's leading you, you go and you trust him to provide. That's the idea. Then in, um, <clears throat> oh, and I'll just say this, but don't tempt the Lord. Remember when Satan says to Jesus, Throw yourself down from here, because the scripture says he won't, he'll send his angels and they'll take charge concerning you and your, your foot won't touch the stone. And Jesus says, do not tempt the Lord. So God will provide, but don't like create the problem, expecting that God will fix it because he might use it as a lesson for you. <laughs> so that may well happen. Okay, verse 11, we read on. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. I think this is absolutely profound that they're going to shake the dust off the soles of their feet. In the Mishnah, the, the, the Jewish writings that we have, early Jewish writings, the Mishnah, it says that Gentile dirt, a clot of Gentile dirt, made you unclean. So it seems as though they, when they left a Gentile territory, they would want to get that dirt off their feet. And Jesus says, go into the towns of Israel, and if they won't listen to you, get, get their dirt off your feet. This is connected to how Jesus is trying to say, kind of what the Old Testament says in times, that sometimes my people, they're like not my people. Sometimes the people of Israel, they're like being worse than Sodom and Gomorrah were. And that's kind of the connection I think that's going on here. It's on them. That's, that's the concept. It's on them. And there's a lot of this in Mark and as well as in the, in the rest of Scripture. Um, we have all these polls right now that go out to try to figure out why people leave Christianity. And um, there's some things we can learn from these polls. 
But it's not like very many people are like, I left Christianity because I had sins that took over my life and I felt really guilty about it and I decided that I just would rather criticize Christianity than deal with my sin. Like no one's going to say that out loud, but this may in fact be the case, uh, but people aren't going to self-report that kind of embarrassing content. They're usually going to report some criticism towards others as the reason why they made a decision for their lives. And so when I say it's on them, it's not on the apostles they go out and they share the message, and if these people reject it, it's on them. That's what the dirt means. I'm shaking my dirt off my foot because it's on you. It's not on me. And this is a consistent thing with Scripture. So I, I, I don't want to say we, we aren't supposed to be ambassadors. We are. And my character truly, truly matters. That I represent Christ well with people. I want to I want to let them see the gospel and how it has impacted my life as part of a testimony of how it can impact their lives, about how Christ can change their life because He's changed mine truly. I want to do that. And that's super important. I'm not downplaying that. Um, Because as Christians, you not only preach Christ, but you present Christ. You represent Christ. Not just with your words, but with your character and your behavior. And to me, that's that's one of the most beautiful things you can do for, for, for the Lord is to submit who you are to him and follow him in Christ's likeness and let that change your, your very self. Who cares about your sense of identity? You need to follow Christ. And that is... What a beautiful surrender that is. You're not just the mouth, you're the body, right? You're the body, that's not just the mouthpiece, the body. But after saying that, um, and while I hope everyone knows at least one solid Christian who they look at and they, have, they don't have anything they can say to disqualify that person because they're just a true believer, they're genuine in their walk, you know? I hope everybody knows someone like that. But I do think on, on the flip side that finding a hypocritical Christian is not a good reason to reject the gospel. I mean, you don't judge things by hypocrites. You, you don't test the truth of Christianity by those who disobey it. You look at it by those who truly follow it. And so that seems like, almost like a cop-out, while, while I admit it's a very common one. The scripture, though, presents it like this. People are turning from Christ, and it's not because Christians aren't godly enough. It's because they are ungodly. That's what scripture says it's not as though if you were more godly everyone in the community would just be totally following Jesus right now that's not what i read in scripture so let me read to you some <clears throat> some examples of this from scripture ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 9 and ezekiel he was a godly man but he wasn't the nicest guy if you look at his character and look you could see he was a godly man but he wasn't like the sweetest kindest he wasn't mr rogers of the old testament In Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 9, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, so this is the guy that's supposed to be warning them if judgment's coming or uh, an army is coming, and he sees the watchman, he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. You get the the picture. They were warned and they didn't care. Blood's on your own head. Verse 5, He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity by his blood, I will require, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. So the guy's still guilty. He still deserves what he gets, but the watchman's guilty too because he didn't say anything. He had a responsibility to warn the people. 
Verse 7, for now, <clears throat> now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. If you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, clearly you were not a good enough example of Christ. No, that's not what it says. If you for your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. It is my responsibility to tell the truth to people. If they reject it, I am now clean from the responsibility. This is what they were doing. They were wiping the, the dirt off their feet as a testimony against those people. We warned you, you rejected it, and now we'll go somewhere else. And the Bible reveals to us that the gospel has both an incredible invitation of God's love and grace, and it has a very serious warning. Both of these things are true. And so we, we present that. With the parable of the sower, which I keep bringing up, but I think we should, it gives us a real understanding of Jesus' view of these things. It shows us that it was the same seed, and it was the soils that were different, just as people receive or reject the gospel, primarily dependent on their own reactions to God, not primarily because they have to judge the character of everybody who tells them the message. Not that that never happens, but that doesn't seem to be the primary issue. I don't think it is. Certainly, you have experienced help from your life, in your life, from people who you would consider hypocrites or even just jerks. But when they told you something, you went, yeah, but he was right. <laughs> you know, He was right, and you sucked it up, and you dealt with it, you know, and there was at least a, a reception to the thing that's there. The Gospel of John has a lot of this. It reveals... Frequently, that it was the condition of the people, not the messengers. It was the people's condition, which is why they accepted or rejected the message. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The way they had already responded to, to the law of Moses dictated how they would respond in the future to Christ. So there was already damage done in their receptivity to God before Jesus ever showed up. And sometimes this is the case with witnessing. John 6, 44 and 45 says, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Meaning the way they were already responding to God dictated how they responded to Christ. Now this is, keep in context, this is the Jewish community. They've had the law. They've had the testimony. They should have been primed and ready for Christ. The laws are tutor to lead us to Christ, but they had not received it well, many of them. Finally, I'll give you an example of this in the New Testament much later, Acts 18. This is where Paul the Apostle goes out and he's sharing. And at one point, he effectively wipes the dirt off his feet. And look at what he says, Acts 18, verses 4 through 6. And he was reasoning in the synagogue, in the synagogue, every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So he gets maybe some some supplies or something or help from those guys. So he's full-time ministry. He was doing part-time and now he's full-time. And he's telling him Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, showing him from the scripture. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. He shook out his garments. He's like shaking the dust off of him. That's the idea. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. Does that not sound like Ezekiel? 
Your blood's on your own heads. I am clean. And then he tells him, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he wipes his feet of, the, of them. Does he still want them to be saved? Yes, but he realizes. Look, you've heard, you've heard, you've heard. You rejected, you rejected, you rejected. I'm going to take it to somebody else. You've heard, you're, you're accountable for that. I am accountable to keep telling this message. And so he moves on. He moves on. So they're accountable for what they heard. And verse 12 in Mark 6 gives us what they heard. What were the disciples preaching? And I think it's really interesting. We should highlight this. It summarizes what they preached with one word. It says in Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. That's the message. Men should repent. Um, Is that because that's all they preached? Like that's a really short message. It's kind of like Jonah when he's like 40 days and then judgment. I mean, Jonah probably said a lot more than that, right? But that was the summary of his message. The focus of his message was 40 days and judgment. Um, The summary of their message, not exactly isn't isn't the word repent. That's not the whole message. We know that. We know that. Um, We know that when Jesus preached the gospel, Mark says that he taught a few things. One, that the, um, the scriptures were fulfilled. So he talked about fulfillment theology, the theology of Christ had fulfilled what was written before. Then he told people that they needed to believe and he told them to repent. So why is repent focused on in Mark 6, 12? I think the idea is repent is the application of the message. So they would tell him about Jesus. They would tell him about who he was. They would tell him about what he was doing and give him his teachings. And then the application was, okay, repent. This is when you find out if they receive it or not. Repentance is the right response to the gospel message. And as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that this is still the message. The response to the gospel is still repent. But Mike, it's believe. And I'm like, yes, well, those are two sides of the same coin. Putting my hope and trust in Christ is part of turning from that life I've been living where I was not following Christ, not trusting in Christ, not following and trusting in God. Repentance here is not meant to be a work you do to earn your salvation. It's the turning of a person's heart and life to God, back to God from the life I've been living to the life of Christ. This is still the message. And for non-Christians who might be listening, you may have heard the gospel message, but you've never applied it possibly. And the application is when you actually repent and you turn your life to Christ. You know those most obvious things in your life that you know you would have to yield to God if you were going to be a Christian? Those are the things. These are the very things. That life that's actually totally yielded to Christ. God has made a way for your salvation. But if you reject that word repent, then you actually end up rejecting the whole gospel message. Because that's where it gets applied into your life. This is hugely important. In verse 13, Jesus goes on, or it goes on. It says, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And now this blows me away. The disciples, while Jesus is still present on earth, they're healing people. Did you notice that before? That in the Gospels, the disciples are actually performing healings, not just Jesus? I think that's really interesting. And I, I asked myself, well, if they were doing this, why isn't it focused on more in the Gospels? And I think the answer is because it's not about the disciples. It's about Jesus. It's like a footnote that the disciples did these healings because it's all about Jesus. The focus is on Christ. And they did it with his authority, not with their own anyways. So when they do it, it just affirms who Christ is. He gave them the authority. Their healings speak not about who they are. Their healings, the healings they did, spoke about who Christ was. And in Acts, they do this too. When Peter and John meet this crippled guy and they start doing healings with Jesus has ascended, right? He's no longer physically present. There's this man who's been born crippled and in Acts 3, 6, this is what Peter says. 
He says, I don't possess silver and gold, he tells the man. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So he, he does this again, but he does it. It's, it's all on Christ, right? All that the church does, Jesus gets credit if it's empowered of the spirit. You know, Jesus gets all the credit for it. That's the idea. Um, I just want to note that healing and exorcism are separated again in this verse. They cast out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. That the sick people are like in a different category than the people who are, have demons. Now we can, we can see that demons perhaps can cause sickness, but they're separate things even in scripture. And that's something I think we should know. Because some people want to say they're all exactly the same. Every kind of sickness or illness is, you know, like if, if a guy's doing something habitually in his life, he has the demon of, fill in the blank. You know, like you just got the demon of road rage. That's what that is. <laughs> Maybe that explains a lot, man. I'm so glad it's not my fault, you know. Um, no, but in reality, we need to take more responsibility for things. But we don't want to make the error of, of thinking that that spiritual realm is not actually engaging with our lives. Because we are experiencing attack and experiences that are very genuine and real. We just don't want to make a mistake there. But let's talk about the, the oil. Because from our, maybe it's our Western culture, I'm just like, trip out on the oil in healing. They anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Now, oil in connection with healing is only mentioned one time in the Gospels at all. In the four Gospels, and it's this verse in Mark. That's it. The other passages, when it talks about them going out healing, it doesn't mention oil. It's just in this one. It's also mentioned in the book of James. You're familiar with the verse, probably already loaded into your mind, right? Where it says, if anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So that's the only other time we get oil and healing connected. It's only in two verses in the whole New Testament. Right there in Mark and then right there in James. Let's talk about that a little bit. Try to understand it a little bit better. Um, one thing I'll note is that Jesus, while the disciples did this, Jesus didn't seem to do it. I don't know of a single example of Jesus healing with oil. And you might think, well, Mike, that's an argument from silence. Maybe he did it and they just didn't record it. You know, we know the disciples did it. And it's only recorded in one verse in Mark. Okay, that's true. Except the difference is we hardly ever read about the disciples doing miracles at all. And when we do read about it, we get, we get at least one reference to them doing, using oil when they prayed for healing. But with Jesus, we have all kinds of descriptions of Jesus healing people. At one point, he sticks his fingers in a guy's ear to heal him. At one point, he spits and he makes mud, puts it in the guy's eye to heal him. Someone else, he just commands from a distance, Lazarus, come forth. Somebody else, she just touches the corner of his robe. Somebody else, it's, it's the, um, you know, if you come and visit me and he just touches their hand. So the little girl arrives, right? He describes her by the hand and he says, arise. We don't, get, we don't hear once about oil, though. We don't hear about it one time. I, I think that, um, in fact, there's one example where the centurion tells Jesus, like, hey, I know if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. You don't even need to come to my house. And Jesus is like, what great faith this man has. And boom, the servant's healed. In this case, Jesus didn't, even, as far as we know, didn't even say, be healed, like really loud. Like the guy's out of earshot, right? It's some faraway distance. He just tells the guy he's healed. Like he's, he just does it without even doing anything, right? And, um, and we never once hear about him anointing with oil in context of healing. So I think that's significant. I think we should keep that in mind. In the book of Acts, we do have a lot of examples of the disciples healing people, right? 
several examples. It happens over and over again in the book of Acts. In the Gospels, it's all about Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see them doing it. We don't have them using oil. Not really. I don't really see it happening there. And, and here again, we have many times where there's detailed descriptions of healings that take place in the book of Acts, but we're not seeing oil being used in those examples. Um, so the disciples didn't seem to always use oil, it, it, but they seemed to use oil. So be sometimes not always. That would be my conclusion from that. Sometimes not always. Now, why would they do this? Why would they do this? And there's a few options we can look at because oil has a certain significance in that culture. For one, oil was just the thing you would use to get you ready for life. Like if you were just going to go out about your day, you would put oil on. That was like a normal thing you would do. In fact, this is where Jesus says like, hey, when you're fasting, don't disfigure your faces. Don't be like, oh, it hurts. You know, no, no. He says, anoint yourself with oil and go about your day. Like be, be normal and ready for the day. So this could have been like a perfume kind of thing or could have just been like a normal you know, I don't know exactly the reason why. Maybe they had BO and they thought oil would help. I know some people who maybe they should use some oil. Uh, maybe that would help. Some people think that about me, I imagine. Um, another option is oil as medicine. So oil was just like getting you ready for the day. Okay, so you could put oil on a, heal, on a person. Like I'm just I'm putting this on you saying, see, you're being restored to society like in, in, in time to go about your day. Maybe it could be that. feels a little weak though, doesn't it? Possible though. Oil is also used as medicine in scripture. Um, in those times. In the Old Testament, we have multiple references to oil being used as medicine. In the New Testament, we, we do as well. We have Luke 10.34, which says, in Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan. Remember, the guy was robbed and beat up, and he was injured severely. Well, this Good Samaritan comes up, and Jesus describes it. it says, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Pour oil and wine on the wounds. Because this was just, whether, whether they worked or not, this was something that they would do medicinally. Oil was used in medicine. Also, Josephus, first century Roman historian, he says that King Herod, um, who by the way, in the book of Acts, King Herod is the guy who gets eaten by worms, right? That's what Acts says. He died by being eaten by worms. Josephus has a big, long description of his illness. In it is included that in his bowels he had worms. So an interesting historical confirmation of the book of Acts. But one of the things King Herod did while he was, he had some pretty terrible, I mean, Josephus describes like what it smelled like and stuff, like how bad he smelled. And he just really wanted to give the details about that sort of thing. But one of the things he says is that Herod, who was the king at the time of the Jews, kind of a, you know, under the Romans, so he didn't have full autonomy, but, uh, but he was a fairly powerful king for those Jewish kings. And he actually at one point bathed his entire body in a bath of oil. When he thought that I thought he was about to die, and they did this like to medicinally help him out, so they thought oil would heal. Oil was used medicinally, whether whether it was effective or not, it was at least something that they would do in that culture, right? And now I, I'm not here. This is where I want to s- s- like get people to slow their roll a bit, because I know essential oils are like a real trendy thing, and in my personal opinion, some of them are useful and some of them are really weird, and um, my, that's my opinion. <laughs> but don't put it on the Bible, right? Because let me give you an example. Do you guys remember the Daniel diet? The Daniel diet? You guys need to go on the Daniel diet. Then you're going to lose weight or you're going to be healthy and you're going to look. And Daniel, look, read the text. Like he only ate these items for such and such. See, but the thing about the book of Daniel is the Daniel diet, it didn't work because it was a good diet. What's amazing is that it worked because it was a bad diet. Right? Read the text. What's amazing is that God sustained him and that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel all looked better than the other youths 
This is what's amazing because they weren't eating as well as those guys. Now, in addition to that, there's the idea of kosher versus not kosher. And if you really want to go with the Daniel diet, you'll only eat kosher, um, which is I don't think what people actually do on that diet. Anyways, we just, we, we're, we're being weird. We're being weird with scripture. If we try to make essential oils in the Bible, um, that's not the point. But they were used for healing. The second century Greek physician, Galen, <clears throat> said that healing was the best of all remedies for paralysis. Healing. Of course, healing is the best of all remedies for everything. Um, oil was the best of all remedies for paralysis, is what he said. Um, obviously, the scripture is okay with the use of medicine. First um, Timothy 5.23 Paul tells Timothy, this is interesting for those who think that we're supposed to get healed every time, all the time. Um, that's not my theology, and I don't think you can sustain it in Scripture. I do think there's a high expectation or a high uh, degree of trust for God's healing, but I don't think it's complete, like 100% every time, all the time. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul wrote to Timothy, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, some bend over backwards to try to make this verse sound like it doesn't say what it says, but Paul's like, Timothy... You clearly need to pray more and have more faith. Actually, Paul doesn't even mention prayer and faith. He tells Timothy that he should not just drink water. He should take some wine because that will help him out. Maybe maybe it's like um, they say in Mexico, you could drink the beer but not the water. I don't know if that's the case. I just bring bottled water if I go to Mexico. But, <laughs> but when you're traveling, you, know, you have to be careful with what kind of stuff you eat. So it, it seems that scripture is okay with medicine. But is that the purpose of the healing? Because in James, it says like anointing them with oil... And you could be like, oh, so it's telling the elders to use oil in healing. But that would only apply if, he, if oil was used in every ailment you can imagine. That would only really work with the book of James. If everything is healed by oil. In a case, we do have the essential oil, like real, because I, like I said, I'm cool with essential oils. But we have like the real extreme fringe wing of it that's like, this will heal everything. It's like, over here you got the guy with this 409. Over here you got the essential oil people. <laughs> like, just squirt this on and you'll be fine. Um... No, I don't think that's the case. Um, actually, James says, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord, meaning that this seems like it's more of a ritualistic oil thing, not perhaps medicinal. That's my impression, and I'm not 100% on that, but that's what I think. So oil also had a couple other possible reasons, uses. One is oil symbolic. It represents things. Oil can be symbolic. Now it can be symbolic of just about anything. It could be symbolic of healing. Maybe the oil wasn't going to heal them, but it represented healing to the people. And so you put oil on them because it represents healing. I know this oil is not going to heal you, but it represents healing. And that could be part of the reason. It could be the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. We get this in Zechariah 14. Oil representing the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, though, consistently oil represents God commissioning people to service of some kind. A king, a priest, um, someone being anointed for a cause or for a duty of some kind. This is We get the word Christ is the anointed. He's the ultimate one who is commissioned to fulfill God's plan. That's possible. Um, ritually, it's used in the cleansing of, say, a leper. A leper, after he was cleansed, they would take oil and they put it, this is Leviticus 14, they put oil on the lobe of his right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot. Obviously, this oil is not healing him. It's symbolic. It goes here, here, and there, representing different parts of the person or something like that. So oil had a variety of uses, and these things are symbolic or representative, and maybe that's why it was used in healing in those cases. Finally, it could be Kind of like a faith trigger. What do I mean by that? I know that might sound like I'm making stuff up. Um, so let me explain. Maybe I am. But let me explain it. You think about it. When the woman wanted to be healed by Jesus, she thought, if only I touch his garments, I'll be healed. What do you think if she had thought, 
if I can only get into his ear range where he hears my voice, then I know I'll be healed. Do you think she would have been healed then? What if she had thought, if I can only touch his hand, then I'll be healed? Would she have been healed when she touched his hand? I think so. I think that's the implication of the passage. You know, he was going to go and heal that centurion's servant, and the centurion goes, oh, no, no, I believe you can heal him from here. And she's like, okay, he's healed. But if the guy didn't say that, he would have gone to the house and done it. Or so it seems from the passage. It seems that healing, healing and faith are very interrelated, and that perhaps the anointing of oil is something to help trigger or anchor the faith of the person who's receiving prayer. It is different when you go forward for prayer and they anoint you with oil than when they don't, isn't it? Now, it may seem awkward socially when they put it on your forehead and then later you're walking around with a shiny forehead and you're thinking, do I wipe it off or do I, do I leave it? And I don't really know the right response right here. And I, I get that, you know, it might seem a little strange and I'm with you. Um, maybe ask them to put it on your hand if that makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, but I do think there's, it's different. It's a different experience, isn't it? And so perhaps that's why he's like, call the elders and anoint with oil. Maybe it's an instruction of something to do, but not necessarily required every time we pray for healing because we see examples of Jesus and the disciples not doing it, as well as an instruction to do it, as well as sometimes they did do it. So it seems like a flexible thing to me. It seems like it to me. Um, yeah, I lean towards the idea that it's symbolic, representative of healing the Holy Spirit, of, of, of restoring them to their life, like the leper when he got restored to society after uh, the oil. So the bottom line um, for that—that's that's it for the study. Okay, so let me sum, let me sum it up for you. The bottom line on application is that as he sent them out two by two, you you legitimately can seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and just trust Him to take care of the rest of your needs. This is not an excuse for laziness. What this is is permission to serve the Lord in your life. Now, sometimes with Paul, that meant full time work and ministry, working all day serving, preaching all night. And that's what it looked like to seek first the, God, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God provided through a job. But the point is that we can seek and serve the Lord and be freed from those worries. And that's what Matthew 6 is all about. So I encourage you as homework, read Matthew 6. He's like, don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. And then he tells us what you should be concerned about. God's kingdom and God's righteousness in your life and uh, through your life. You have freedom to seek first. And this fits any life. It has nothing to do with going out two by two exactly. It has everything to do with trusting God in your daily life, seeking and serving him. There is times to take away nothing, take along with you nothing, and there's times where you take everything along with you, just like Jesus gave the disciples different instructions at different times. And we need wisdom in the leading of the Holy Spirit to know like when I should do that or when I shouldn't do that. And then for the, for the non-believer, the application, if, if, if anyone's stuck as a non-believer is bothered watching this long, <laughs> then thank you. I'm glad you did. I appreciate it. Um, but the application is easy. The message of Christ, right, that he died for your sin, that he rose again from the dead. That message is not a passive thing you just listen to and think about. God is calling you to, to respond. Repent. Turn. From what? What are you turning from? You're turning from the life without Christ to the life with Christ. To the life when Jesus is not Lord. To the life where you say, Christ, you are my Lord. Turning from the life you know that you've lived apart from him to the life you can live with him. The answer is to repent. The response is there. A call to turn back to God in truth. It's not just a doctrinal affirmation that makes you a Christian. It's the turning of you to God. You turn to God. That's the thing. It's not just intellectual. It is, it is relational. And that's what repentance does. It makes it relational, I think. So let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the wonderfully liberating idea that we can um, be sold out for Christ and trust you to take care of our needs. We realize that you have different varied plans for our lives and maybe that sometime maybe we will suffer lack because of the will of God. But we can trust that that is because of the will of God, not because we made a mistake in seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that courage to not be focused upon the things of this world as much as we are focused upon the things of your kingdom. To seek first your kingdom with the outreach of our lives and with the ministry to others and with the connection and fellowship to other Christians. And we also pray, Lord, that we would seek first your righteousness with purity, ever-increasing sanctification in our lives, that we would live for Jesus more and more. And Lord, we mean it. We pray, open our eyes to see maybe old habits that you want to change. To see with clarity the compromise that we have, Lord, that we might be delivered from it and be following you so much more, entering into more and more of your joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.